am Tim Root, Head of Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest episode of On the Hill. Today, I want to welcome my friend, very special guest, Chief Economist for First American Financial, Dr. Mark Fleming. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Tim, how are you? Awesome. Awesome. Hi, Mark. So in preparation for this interview, I did what I, you know, what I always do, which is you know, I asked around, I did a little research on you. I mean, I've known you for at least a decade or so. But just basically trying to figure out the man, you know, who is Dr. Mark Fleming. And I want you to know that I found nothing. I mean, nothing salacious, not even remotely provocative, which was like <laughs> super disappointing for me, but I guess probably a good thing for you. But Tim, I did, I'm an economist. We're by definition boring. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, you do appear to be a bit of an onion, though. So there's, there's nuances to this that you're going to have to set me straight on. Things like... Okay. So I, I've deducted that you might be a Quaker based on the whole Swarthmore College reference. You can confirm or deny that if you choose. I did go to Swarthmore, which is a Quaker-founded school, but you don't have to be a Quaker to go there. I am not technically a Quaker. <laughs> okay, te te teachable moment. Okay, so you hold multiple patents. You're from across the pond, England, if I'm correct. You yes. fancy yourself a beer brewer. This is a good one. I try, you yes. <laughs> You lived in Nigeria. I can't say it's on my bucket list, but okay. I'd like to hear about that. And you're into endurance sports. So as I think I warned you, since I came up empty handy on, handed on the, you know, the juicy stuff, I have to ask you to kind of you know, share something interesting or embarrassing about yourself, at least a little factoid or something that folks would be interested to hear. Sure. So I guess we could cut across a couple of off the list. Let's start with Nigeria. I did spend a summer there in college living, basically doing a summer semester abroad at uh, the University of Ibadan, which is sort of their Harvard in Nigeria. This was in the <laughs> mid 1990s, which was an absolutely eye opening and fascinating experience for me. The reason why I did that, because, you know, you could choose a lot of different places to go and study abroad. Why on earth Nigeria was because as you said, I'm originally from England, and my grandfather was a British civil servant in the middle of the 20th century, in the 1900s, so during the latter years of colonialism. And he was actually stationed in Africa as an educator. He ran the school systems in, in um, Kenya and the Sudan for, for the British when they were the colonial powers there. And my mom grew up living in Africa, went to boarding school in England, but lived in Africa and went home for the holidays in the summer. So a long-founded multi-generational connection in my family to Africa that uh, really drew me there. Wow. Well, I didn't think it would be casual, but I didn't expect that. So <laughs> thanks for the color. All right. Well, one last thing before we you know, really get started. You know, I was thinking about this interview over the weekend. And for whatever reason, I started reflecting on how nobody I know in housing finance Know, ever set out to be in this industry. Like, for example, I was in college and bartending at my parents' restaurant one night when I was home on a break, and some nut said something lewd to my mother. So I, you know, naturally threw a, a metal shaker glass at his head. You know, you fast forward several years later, and I ran into this guy at a Blockbusters video, and he ended up offering me a job as a retail loan officer right out of college. And the longer version is even more bizarre, I'll, I'll tell you another time. But so that leads me. So what's your story? How did you end up in the industry? Well, like, as I mentioned with the Africa connection, I originally went to graduate school to get my PhD, hoping to do environmental and developmental economics in Africa. And 
my advisor said you would have to go and spend years of your life collecting the data there to do your dissertation. And But I have over here all this real estate data. How would you like to sort of analyze some real estate problems? And I built a valuation model, model that predicts the value of home prices as part of my dissertation research. And that's what led me, Tim, to where I met you first, which was, you know, Fannie Mae was mm-hmm. building automated valuation models. And so they hired me to come work for them. I knew nothing about mortgage finance, <laughs> but knew how to predict house prices. And that's where I got into real estate economics and more specifically the mortgage finance side of it. Awesome. Mine's more colorful, but yours is probably more legitimate. I guess he liked your moxie when you were throwing that shaker at him. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very true story. Very true story. Anyway, very funny though. All right. So first I want to talk to you about, you know, the COVID related uh, forbearance programs and the foreclosure moratoriums, as you would imagine. So as I was thinking this through, you know, historically the remedy for people who can't afford their mortgage is, as you would expect, they typically sell. And if there's equity in the home, they can use that to get into a more affordable situation, you know, use the proceeds, move, whatever. But if there is an equity, you know, perhaps to a decline in home prices, like we experienced in obviously 2008, Homeowners are in a bad spot and need help to prevent a foreclosure. Now, this time around, of course, home prices are skyrocketing. People who can't afford their mortgage you know, could sell and, you know, left alone, they probably would. But the foreclosure moratoriums obviously are keeping people from selling. Now, one of the risks of the foreclosure moratoriums is that distressed borrowers actually might miss out. Home prices drop. In the future, they could have sold for a real profit. Now, I like to remind folks that mortgage equity is often a very temporary situation, given values rise and fall for a myriad of reasons all the time. However, mortgage debt is permanent, at least it has been historically. So my question to you, Mark, then is how have you been thinking about the extended forbearance and foreclosure moratoriums? And how do you see this whole thing kind of playing out? Yeah, so that's a great setup, Tim. The, there's two parts to it. One is sort of fundamentally, how does the process happen? And you know, I like to talk about it as a dual trigger concept. And the first trigger is necessary, but not sufficient for foreclosure. And that is to be seriously delinquent. For some reason, I cannot make my mortgage payments. And as you said, historically, we sort of look at 90 or maybe 120 days delinquent as being in that serious delinquency bucket. The second one is whether or not I have equity in my home. That's also necessary, but not sufficient for foreclosure. Because to your point, if you're seriously delinquent and you have equity, then even in times of past, you wouldn't go to foreclosure. You'd sell your home, take your equity and find another housing solution for yourself without the bank having to foreclose on you. We call that in economics terms, involuntary sale (laughs) to the extent that probably didn't want to, but for your situational condition because of serious delinquency, you have to involuntarily sell your home. If you, what happened in the global housing crisis was obviously both of those necessary, but not sufficient conditions, they overlap with each other. And when the two come together, serious delinquency and lack of equity, then we see a real rise in foreclosures. And so first of all, as you point out right now, the risk of foreclosure even for those I'll characterize, you know, forbearance to me is is a temporary name for serious delinquency, right? So lots of seriously delinquent borrowers, whether actually seriously delinquent or in forbearance, but not likely to become foreclosed borrowers because everyone is sitting on massive amounts. In fact, historically high trillions of dollars of housing equity at this point. 
So the risk of that transition is very, very low, even though there's forbearance. But I think it is important to say, it's a good point to note that if you're in forbearance, we're basically just holding on everything and waiting to see what happens. And you know, there are, we will probably talk about a little bit later, there are costs associated with basically just forestalling the traditional process of management of mortgage finance and the rules and regulations around what constitutes being um, in compliance with your contract or not in compliance with your contract when it comes to your mortgage. Yep, I agree with that. Well, you and your, I know, colleague Odetta have done some really great reporting on, you know, why this crisis won't end in a foreclosure crisis like the great financial crisis. And I totally agree with you, but can you take us through a little bit more in detail how you were thinking about those current circumstances and how that will end up, the, the non-event, if you will, on the foreclosure side. Yeah. So this is the classic, this time it's different, which means every one of your listeners is going to say, ah, right, roll your eyes at me. Like every time you, that's the biggest warning sign, right? But this time is very different from the global financial crisis, which we see as one of the most unique and one of the few or only times when house prices have significantly declined, causing that dual trigger event to overlap. Why is it different than before? Well, before part of what was pushing prices up was a lot of speculative behavior, as well as financial, shall we say, innovation in the mortgage products, which was maintaining a monthly payment amount relatively low compared to the amount you could borrow, which is sort of keeping the demand side of the market in play, which is what was pushing prices up. Prices became fundamentally overvalued. Well, when we look at today, actually by our estimation, house prices are not overvalued. They may be high, but interest rates are so low. So there's a reason why they're high. Your affordability is still there. And there aren't those finance products that are out that were there before. So we're really holding the line on sort of the credit worthiness of borrowers. There's a fundamental demand that's out there in terms of millennials wanting to become home buyers. And so there's a big supply and demand imbalance. And that's what's driving prices up right now is this imbalance between supply and demand with a lack of supply. And those are all very different scenarios from what happened in the global financial crisis. So this time it's different. And the result of that is likely even more house price appreciation in the next year or so, because I don't think we can fix the supply and demand imbalance that quickly. No, that's for sure. I think you guys summed it up really nicely when you said it's not so much that this time is different, it's that last time was different, which makes a lot more sense to me. That was kind of a perverted system based on fraud and speculation, which is obviously not the case this time around. That's right. You know, I think we've learned a lot of lessons in that last time that was so uniquely different. I don't think you would agree now a little over a decade out that we do mortgage finance very differently than we did at that time. Even the servicing of loans in distress is done differently than that time around. It's funny, I'm thinking about when I did the interview with Mark Calabria a month or so ago, uh, he talks, as you would imagine, because he's a libertarian, about the follies of government interventions. And he says in one example that he goes, one day servicers are going to be looking back at the last crisis. You're like, man, remember the good old days when it only took a thousand days to foreclose? And ironically, it does seem like, you know, we are kind of going down that path where these things just get blown out bigger, wider every time government has to intervene again, usually to solve for a problem that they helped create the last time they intervened. I think it's a very slippery slope in that if you sort of really, as an economist, at least, because this is a vast oversimplification, obviously, of how it really works, but regulation 
is intended to, you know, fix a market failure. You know, that's sort of the, the premise that we learn in graduate school about why regulate a market in some way. It's to fix some sort of a market failure. But in practice, that's very hard to be able to be that focused and not in some way, shape or form actually end up distorting market behavior while you do it. Yeah, yeah we're pretty comfortable with the distortion side. All right, well, along that lines, you know, another issue with these, I guess I'd call them extreme and kind of protracted government intervention into the mortgage market is that it, it erodes trust in housing finance and in government lending programs like FHA and Fannie and Freddie. Now, of course, that's not to say that, you know, these aren't urgent circumstances that warrant a compassionate response. You know, consider that it's relatively easy for the government to extend foreclosure, things like foreclosure moratoriums, because from a legislative scoring perspective, you know, which is basically how much a provision in a bill will cost, it doesn't really cost anything to have servicers advance funds to investors or to allow people to stay in their homes without making rent or mortgage payments, the way it's structured now in terms of capitalizing those payments on the back end. Now, don't forget, of course, that politicians just love to give away all kinds of things that aren't theirs to give as a time-honored way of really getting votes. So this is consistent with that. The problem with this situation is that it's really also likely to cause lenders to lose confidence in their borrower's commitment to upholding their obligations as a borrower. So these extended moratoriums, especially for like non-government-backed loans, also really challenges the very heart of contracts by making it possible for the borrower not to follow the terms and conditions that they agreed to. And so one of the concerns is that lenders will take only the most pristine credit risk themselves and eventually sell everything else to the government, which of course means the government will be adversely selected even further than it is today from a credit perspective. So long-winded way of getting to my question mark, you know, what sort of long-term impacts do you think this will have on government-backed lending? You know, do you see this will ultimately turn into private lenders treating mortgages like unsecured lending, for example? That's a long statement and a big question. Uh, how do I pack this? Let's start with some of the things you mentioned in there. Yes, there's the mortgage finance process is predicated essentially on a set of contract contracts between different parties, actually at multiple levels. There is a contract between you, the mortgage borrower, and the lender that you will make your mortgage payment. And if you don't, they have the right to get made whole by accessing the equity in your home. That's what foreclosure is all about. So there's a contract there. Then there are contracts between the investors and the uh, bondholders that hold hold the bonds between uh, the investors as bondholders uh, between the people who make the bonds, which are the pools of the mortgages that have all those individual contracts. And so there's contracts there about how all of that interest income flows out all the way up the stack of the mortgage finance system. And contract law and the pricing of the risks, I think you mentioned as a general statement, the pricing of the risks become a, sort of a function of what you require to buy the, and finance in the loans in those mortgage in that mortgage finance stack. Anytime, as a general premise, anytime you, back to the market distortion concept, disrupt the potential of the ability to adhere to the contracts, then um, you're essentially saying, well, without the contract, there must be potentially more risk there. And ultimately then that means the investors would need to charge more. You make the great analogy, if you think about my inability to foreclose creates effectively an unsecured loan product. We're not really saying that's actually the case now, but 
as an as an extreme example, you know, if there's nothing that can you can do to be made whole, that's somewhat akin to a credit card and unsecured lending. And we know the rates that investors charge to fund credit cards are significantly higher than for mortgages, particularly on the private side. So whether you ever got to truly unsecured lending and a mortgage in an unsecured way, having an interest rate similar to a credit card at 17%, probably never going to happen. But can you continue to support 3.5% or 4% in a private market? Or in other words, the spread between the alternative of a 10-year treasury and what you would charge for mortgages would probably get larger if there's a belief amongst investors that contracts don't allow you to treat it like secured lending as opposed to unsecured lending. Right. That makes sense. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's meant to be a little bit provocative, but some of that is going to bear out in terms of the the practices by the private sector following this. Right. I think I mentioned it. Actually, a great historical point here I mean, just the 17 or 18% numbers are sticking in my brain. Back in 1981, under Paul Volcker, mortgage rates were 17 or 18%. Now, the 10-year treasury was much higher and inflation, they were trying to wring inflation out of the system. But I'll just point out, even with rates at similar levels to an unsecured debt today, people still bought homes. So maybe less home, but they still bought homes. Well, we're going to have to find out a, a regulatory equivalent to methadone to get us off of the, the, low, the low income or the low interest rate high that we're all enjoying. I don't know how you get off that, but the yield curve control seems to be inevitable, but that will come with a whole host of consequences that my little brain can't totally process. And we've been on this fix for 10 years already. Well, you know, I, I think I mentioned in, a, in an email to you that this is starting to feel like this sort of intervention is starting to remind me of when the government took over the student loan market. And I know you're not an expert on this, but neither am I. But there's just some high level things like when President Obama, I think it was 2009-ish, famously stated that you know banks don't belong in the student loan business. And, and the government takes over. Once the government took over, the number of loans skyrocketed. I think it went up like 10x in just 10 years. The excess demand caused the cost of tuition to spike. Then they moved to a, I think they called it an income-driven repayment plan so that the payments didn't exceed a certain percent of your income. And then whatever was left over after whatever, 20 or 25 years was ultimately forgiven. And that really feels like the road we're going down with housing and housing finance. I can't tell you if it's for better or worse though. It's not just a, a student loan aside, uh, questions aside, in the mortgage finance system, uh, you know, that concept of yield curve control, I think, is really what does it. I mean, the clear and obvious control of the long end of the yield curve using quantitative easing, you know, keep in mind that the classic Fed funds rate won't change the yield curve at the long end. And so it doesn't really matter what the Fed funds rate is. It matters what the 10-year yield is. And conscious effort to keep that down has kept mortgage rates down. And that has spurred huge amounts of purchasing power or buying power on the part of borrowers, which is, is why house prices are going up. So asset inflation is a function of that yield curve control. Yeah. And you see that with folks talking about like modern monetary theory and things like that is that while the government can control interest rates and print money, they can't actually you know, set the purchasing power of that currency, which is you know, one of the things that obviously is being eroded and gives rise to things like cryptocurrencies and things like that. Exactly. But so let's talk more generally. So if, if we were to talk about the housing market and President Biden's emphasis on 
increased home ownership for you know minorities, first-time home buyers, while also trying to make home ownership more affordable, at least more affordable than it is for too many people overpaying in this market. You've spoken about this before, and I totally agree, which is, you know, we all grew up with this rule of thumb that you shouldn't buy a home that's more than three times your annual income. And as you've touched on, you know, that was certainly true when rates were in the six to 8% range, but now with rates half that, or even less than half that, the ratio in today's market is closer to seven or eight times annual income. Now, personally, I, I think the Fed and lawmakers are in a real pickle because philosophically Democrats know that the people that they're trying to help don't own assets like stocks or homes and a well-orchestrated crisis, I guess you'd call it, would disproportionately hurt the wealthy as the value of their assets drop, which that in turn creates opportunities for these underserved Americans to buy the dip. However, even a modest drop in home values, ultimately negative impacts GDP. So it's really a non-starter. So my question really is, how do you think we can make housing more affordable without taking you know, values down 30 or 50%, which would get us back in line with our old measure of affordability? I suppose I have to ask myself the question in the first place, which is, why do we want to, you know, why, why is there that focus on providing affordability in housing to these underserved markets? And I think there's very little disagreement about the fact it, it is that, you know, we believe that there are many, many benefits to being a homeowner. One of the main ones is it's, a, it's the single best way for most American households to generate wealth. And so I don't think any disagreement about that desired goal. The question then becomes how to do it. And typically, if you look certainly at a federal level, federal policy around achieving that laudable goal of increased home ownership for all because of those benefits, particularly wealth creation, that it's almost always been demand side leverage, right? Create affordability by ma manipulating the demand side of the market. And that's all well and good, absolutely. But if you in this moment stimulate more demand, create more affordable products, uh, down payment assistance, any of these kinds of techniques, which are good and laudable things to do, if you do that in a scenario with a lack of supply, stimulating demand when there's not enough of supplied inventory, when there's a shortage of houses for sale, all that that does is increase house prices. It's not unlike any other market in that sense. If there's a lack of a supply of something and you create more demand for it, prices go up. Prices are the result of the dynamic between supply and demand. Okay, so that said, how do we solve the problem? Well, create more supply somehow, which is a bigger, broader problem across the board and usually something that cannot be tackled at the federal level because supply of housing is generally controlled much more locally with zoning and regulations and all of those kinds of things at the local level. But I will say more generally, it doesn't have to be accomplished. Creating affordability doesn't have to be accomplished through reduction in house prices. It can be simply accomplished by reducing the pace of house price appreciation such that income growth can catch up. So if you create more supply, that will slow down the house price appreciation rate. It doesn't make it go negative. It doesn't make house prices go down. It just slows down the appreciation. If you do enough creation of supply, it slows it down sufficiently enough such that potentially a well-running, strong, fast-growing economy 
generates higher income growth and your ability to afford a home goes up, meaning more people can become homeowners without actually destroying anybody else's wealth. Yeah, it's that I think I, you heard you guys or read you describing it once before. It's kind of like price moderation as opposed to price collapse. Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. And um, one of the interesting things I was talking to Jim Parrott and he had talked about things like some of the public policy that the Biden team was looking at for things like you know, down payment assistance or down payment grants, which on the surface sounds really intriguing and a great way to overcome some of the economic hurdles to home ownership. The problem is because if you're not solving for the supply problem first, all you're really doing is subsidizing sellers as opposed to subsidizing the buyers, right? Because it just increases demand, which pushes prices even higher, which is what you're trying to avoid. There's a, it, it's, it makes absolute sense to provide some concept around down payment assistance to first-time home buyers because it is the single largest impediment, impediment, all the surveys say, to becoming a homeowner. But to Jim's point, you do that now and all you will do is immediately capitalize it into prices because of the lack of supply scenario. And so it makes sense to solve the demand problem, but it doesn't solve the affordability problem because we would just get more expensive houses. You saw the this to some extent with the first time home buyer tax credits in the, maybe was that six or seven years ago, it stimulated a lot of demand. Now at the time we had much more supply. We were just sort of recovering from the, the, the trough of the housing market. If that had been a supply constrained market, it would have been capitalized immediately into price. This is also something that Ed Pinto and the AEI team often talk about. We have to be very careful about the implications because as you said at the end, all that means is higher priced homes and it basically undermines the whole thing you were trying to achieve in the first place. All right, Mark, well, that steered us right into my last question. And that's, this has to do with you, know, you and your colleagues at First American having created the real house price index to show people not just where home values are going, but to really consider and understand the true affordability of homes across the United States gets into someone's real buying power in different markets. As I was thinking about it over the weekend, I guess the my main question is, why did you create the index and how basically should folks use it? Is there a use case that you really think about when you, when you talk about the, the opportunity for using this and what unique insights it's going to provide you? Yeah, it was actually born out of some frustration on my part in reading all the stories about house prices. You know, when all the major indices are released, they talk about how much house prices have gone up or gone down, which is much more rare, but how much they've gone up. And I look, I would always look at that and say, yes, but you can clearly see in the narrative of, you know, house prices have gone up, gone up by a certain amount, and that somehow implies some loss of affordability. And I would always sort of say to myself, but no, no, that's not a sufficient statement. Just because house prices have risen doesn't tell you that things are less affordable. And I guess what I would mean by that is, by analogy, use the concept of um, a gallon of milk in the CPI inflation index. If a gallon of milk goes up by 2%, that's inflation, and my income goes up by 2% in real terms, in that the classic you know, sense of the word in you know, economic adjusted real terms, my buying power is unchanged. I can afford to buy the same amount of milk that I did before because my income grew at the same rate as inflation. And there are some now that take nominal house price indices and deflate them 
with the CPI. So they'll say, well, you know, if house prices have gone up by 4% and the CPI says the cost of goods have gone up by 2%, then four divided by two in real terms, house prices have gone up by two. But gosh darn it, why does the cost change of a gallon of milk have anything to do with the inflation of house prices? It doesn't. I buy a home with a mortgage under most circumstances. And so my buying power doesn't change just as a function of income. It changes as a function of income and the mortgage rate. And when we calculate the buying power using those two things, and we have part of our real house price index suite is we actually measure one's house buying power and how much it changes, it changes month to month. M most of the movement is in the month to month changes of interest rates. But as we know, Tim, over the last 10 years, interest rates have come down. They're now at three and a half. They were below 3% a couple months ago. You know, your buying power, even if your income hasn't changed very dramatically, your buying power has increased extremely dramatically because of the lower rates. And so if your buying power of a home as a function of interest rates goes up by 10% over, say, last year, and house prices nominally rise by 10%, that same amount over the last year, that's a really high amount of nominal house price appreciation. But just like with the milk analogy, you can buy the same amount of home because your buying power kept up with the house price growth rate. So the real house price index is basically our way of showing that relationship between buying power and nominal prices. When the real house price index grows, it's saying that house prices are going up faster than your buying power is going up. And when, when the real house price index is declining, it's actually saying not nominal house prices are declining, declining but that your buying power is going up faster than the real house than, than nominal house prices are. And so the real house price index is actually simply a measure of affordability because it's accounting for your ability to buy a home and your buying power relative to the price of the home. Yeah, it's super interesting. Uh, I found it to be really valuable just when I picked at it. I had to park on it for a little while just to make sure I was really grasping the whole concept of it. But now that I have, I, I think it's incredibly valuable. We do it at the national level. We do it for all the major metropolitan areas in the United States. There have been times in the last few years where house prices have, you know, affordability has been going up. When you look at, at the long run nationally, one of the reasons I sort of say that, you know, this time it's different. We don't think house prices are overvalued at the moment like they were in the global financial crisis, which reduces the risk of another housing collapse. Because our real house price index says that relative to the nominal price may be high, but because your purchasing power is so high, real house prices are not that high right now. Another way to think about it is all this price appreciation, 10 and 12% is fundamentally supported. Fundamentally supported by what? three and a half percent mortgage rates. That's what is supporting it. Exactly. Well, hey, Mark, that's all the questions I have for you. This has been fabulous. It's always great to connect and love your insights. And I'll leave you with a closing memory I had. You and I were on the same show. I can't remember what segment it was, either CNBC or Fox Business. It's probably like 2013 or something when I was still pretty green on the whole TV media stuff and all that. I show up for this interview and I go in the green room and you're there. And I'm like, oh, crap. I got to debate Mark Fleming on this stuff. <laughs> it gave me a heart attack. So I went with the strategy. I was like, you know what? If I just agree with Mark, then there's really nothing for us to debate. And I can get out of this thing without any marks on me. And it worked famously. So 
Australian. Oh my gosh, back in 2013, I was pretty green at this whole thing too. I, I hope we both didn't agree on something that turned out to be wrong. <laughs> no, we were like two 13-year-old girls like slap fighting because we were in such a, you know, unanimous agreement on practically everything. So it was oh, that's really entertaining though. All right, buddy. Thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. I look forward to catching up to you properly and in person next time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, Tim. All right, bud. Take care. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On The Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.